0: You are now listening to the June 4th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have Nearer to My God to Thee, the sermon, and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with Nearer My God to Thee.
1: My God to Thee, where we look into the background of a hymn and reflect upon its meaning in a deeper way. Last week, we shared the story about George Beverly Shea, who sang I'd Rather Have Jesus. George was born as a pastor's child in Winchester of Ontario in Canada. Ever since he was young, he attended church and lived a spiritual life. George was born with a great voice, and he blessed many church members by singing hymns. George had a talent in music and decided to study music in college. However, after a year in college, he had to leave school due to the economic recession in America and worked at an insurance office. By coincidence, he met Mr. Fred Allen, who was the chief programmer of NBC Radio. He sang in an amateur hour program and instantly rose to stardom. His popularity was rising daily. However, as his popularity was soaring, his faith was declining. Due to his popularity, he had a very busy life and it was becoming more difficult for him to attend Sunday worship. Eventually, he stopped going to church. He wasn't able to read the Bible, which he once read daily, and he didn't even pray. What incident happened to George? What was the reason why he saying I'd rather have Jesus? We'll find out through a drama.
2: Contrary to his increasing popularity, George's faith was becoming dry. George's mother was concerned about his life.
3: Lord... George has become so famous in the world that he has forgotten you. He has forgotten that Jesus is more important than all the fame and wealth in the world. Lord, please have pity upon George and please restore the love he had towards you. Please have compassion upon George. Oh, oh Lord!
2: George's mother prayed in tears for George to return to God. One day, George visited his mother. His mother prepared dinner for him and began talking.
3: George, you must be very busy these days. Yes, my popularity is growing. (laughs) George, can I tell you my request? Request? What kind of request? Do you need money? How much? I will give it to you. No, no. I I don't need money, George. I know you have a busy life as a singer, but I hope you can keep the Bible, which is God's word, close
2: to you. Can you do that? Oh, the Bible? Um, yes, I'll do that. I'll do as you say, so don't worry. George returned home and just as he promised his mother, he began reading the Bible. George was reading the Bible for a few days and strangely, he began to reflect upon his past. He thought of how his father passionately did ministry. He thought about how he went to church while holding his mother's hand. He thought about how he joyfully sang hymns and confessed that he loved the Lord while crying. He thought of all these things while reading the Bible. A few days later, George was invited to a Christian gathering and he went there. The people who were gathered there gave testimonies of how they received the joy of salvation through Jesus Christ.
3: Jesus forgave all my sins. When I realized this, then the world began to look different. I have truly become a new creation. It's the same for me. I was going through a very difficult time in my life and I wanted to die. I had no hope in life. However, by chance, my friend gave me a Bible, and I found hope. Jesus came to this earth to give hope to a hopeless person like me. That's right. There is hope in the Lord. I had a successful business and accumulated great wealth. However, that wealth couldn't bring happiness. There was always oh, emptiness in my soul. However, Jesus feel that emptiness. Now I can give up everything, but I can't give up Jesus.
2: As George was listening to the endless testimonies, he began to feel ashamed. All these people seem filled with joy. What about me? I've gained popularity and money, but why don't I have the joy that they have? What's the use of all this popularity and money? They all seem futile. In the past, I had the joy of salvation like them. Oh, I have left the Lord. I have lost something so precious. Lord, if it's not too late, I want to return to you. If you will accept me, I want to restore the joy of salvation.
3: I have used this voice and talent for myself until now, but I will use it for you alone. Lord... Please accept me.
2: George restored the joy of salvation at the gathering and decided to only serve Jesus Christ from now on. George was deeply moved as he returned home. Then he received a phone call. Hello, this is George Shea. Ah,
3: George! I'm Mr. Brown! THE PRESIDENT OF Capitol RECORDS!
2: Ah, yes. Hello, Mr. Brown.
3: I heard your contract with M&G is ending. I would like to offer you an exceptional deal if you make a contract with Capitol RECORDS after your contract with M&G is over. I will give you three times a contract price and bonus than M&G. How about it? Why don't you make a contract with Capital Records?
2: Ah, uh, Mr. Brown, thank you for your generosity. However, you called me too late. I just made a contract with someone else.
3: What? You already made a contract with someone else? Which company is it? I'll pay for the penalty, so cancel the contract and work with me.
2: <laughs> I apologize, but it's a contract that I can't cancel. From now on, I made a contract to only use my voice and talent and my all for the glory of God who is my Lord and for Jesus Christ who saved me. Without hesitation, George turned down an offer from the president of a record company who would have given him three times more money. George's heart had really changed. That day, George went to his mother and shared the happy news. Mother!
3: Oh, George, why are you here at night? Mother, I made a decision. Huh? What kind of decision? I have decided to only praise the Lord. I will no longer be a singer. What? Oh, thank you, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord. You have heard and answered my prayer. Thank you, Lord.
2: That day, George embraced his mother and shed tears in awe of salvation. George quit his life as a singer and returned to his mother's house and lived with her. One day, George's mother left a memo on top of his piano. On the memo, his mother wrote a poem called I'd Rather Have Jesus by Ray Miller. Huh? A memo? I'd rather have Jesus? I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather be his than had riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand. Then to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords. What an amazing confession. My feelings are written in this poem. Let me add a melody to this poem. I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. George sat in front of the piano and began adding a melody to the poem and the popular hymn, I'd Rather Have Jesus, was born. Later on, George met Billy Graham, who was the greatest evangelist at that time. They served together for 45 years and shared the gospel to over 2.2 million people and saying, I'd rather have Jesus.
1: By the great grace of God, George Shea was able to lay everything down when he was at the top and went before Lord Jesus. George was a part of the Billy Graham crusade team and he went all over the world to give praise and testimony. He lived as a faithful worshiper and went to Jesus at the age of 104 in 2013. Revelation chapter 22 verse 16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. Only Jesus is the true star. Only He is worthy to receive everyone's glory and praise. Today, we should ask ourselves, what is the most precious thing within us? There shouldn't be anything more precious than Lord Jesus. Just like George Shea, I hope we can all confess I'd rather have Jesus. We'll end Near My God to Thee. Goodbye!
4: I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold I'd rather be his than have riches untold I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands I'd rather be led by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain or be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world. Applause. I'd rather be faithful to his dear cause. I'd rather have Jesus and worldwide fame. I'd rather be true to his holy name than to be the Or be held in sin.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Miter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is treason of the highest order. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
5: So one thing that generally will get people's blood boiling is when someone is caught being treasonous to our country. We love our country, do we not? We love our country, so when you betray it, We're not happy about it. Now, although the United States is a relatively young country, we have had our fair share of people who have betrayed this country. Perhaps the most famous, and everybody will know this one, Benedict Arnold, right? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, of course, was an American military officer who served in the Revolutionary War. General George Washington had given him his fullest trust and had placed him in command of West Point in New York. Arnold, however, was planning to surrender the fort to British forces, but the plot was discovered in September of 1780, whereupon Benedict Arnold fled to the British lines. He was then made a brigadier general in the British army, and then he went on to lead the British army in battle against the very soldiers that he had once commanded. Makes your blood boil, doesn't it? Not good, not good. But he wasn't the only one. One of the more unique acts of treason was actually carried out by a married couple, Julius and Ethel Rosenberg, a husband and wife duo. The Rosenbergs were convicted of providing top-secret information on radar, sonar, jet propulsion, and this is critical, valuable nuclear weapon designs. At that time, when they did that, The United States was the only country in the world that had nuclear weapons. We were the only one with that information, and these people gave it away. Makes your blood boil, doesn't it? Convicted of espionage in 1951, they were executed by the federal government in 1953. Two years too late, in my opinion. In more modern times, former FBI agent Robert Hansen spied for the Soviets from 1979-2001. Hansen espionage, his espionage was described by the Department of Justice as possibly the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. 1979 to 2001, he gave away military secrets. His handlers, that's what they called it, the, the Russians that handled him, his handlers. He would literally drop off secrets in a park in Washington, D.C., and they would go and pick it up. And he did this for years and years and years. And it's really interesting. You can go online and actually watch his arrest on YouTube. They filmed his arrest in 2001 as he walked out of the park, clueless that he was about to be arrested. And sure enough, the FBI showed up, and that was the end of that. Hansen is currently serving 15 consecutive life sentences without parole at the only federal supermax prison in the United States. It's where we send the worst of the worst, the Unabomber, all the terrorists. Well, that's where we sent him. 15 consecutive life sentences. So when we hear reports about people committing treason, our blood boils, as it should because treason is betrayal on a massive scale. It is betrayal on a massive scale. For many, including myself, nothing short of the death penalty is appropriate for those that commit treason. That Hansen is still alive is an injustice in my book, but that's for another story, that's for another sermon. I find, <laughs> I find that I have very little mercy toward anyone who is treasonous. I suppose that's why so many people feel angry that we see people advocating for socialism in this country. It feels like such people are betraying what this country has always stood for and made this country great. Things like freedom and independence and personal responsibility. But here's the deal. This sermon today is not about this country and it is not about the people that commit treason against this country. Here's where it gets interesting for those of us that are believers. For those of us that are believers, we understand, at least we should, that acts that we deem treasonous don't necessarily have to be tied to the betrayal of one's country. As a matter of fact, we understand that there is a type of treason that makes betraying one's country seem, and I mean significantly, significantly less offensive. If you can believe it, there is a type of treason that is significantly more offensive than the people that I just laid out. More offensive, Benedict Arnold did, than Julius and Ethel Rosenberg did. More offensive than what Robert Hansen did. We understand this. At least we should. And that is the treason that led Jesus to the cross. It is the treason that led Jesus to the cross. See, there is a type of treason that is worse than even betraying one's country, and that is the sin. That is your sin and mine. What does that treason look like? It looks something like this. Church, it's my honor to take us to the word of God today. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 1, looking at just 2 and 4, to look at what treason of the highest order looks like. So church, hear the word of God this morning. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. This is God speaking. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation. A people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Amen. Church, hear the word of God. By the way, this morning, if you want to know what treason of the highest order is, just go on to read all of Isaiah chapter 1. It is an indictment on an entire nation for having turned their backs on the one true God, the late. Great pastor and theologian, Dr. R.C. Sproul said, sin is treason against a perfectly pure sovereign. It is an act of supreme ingratitude toward the one to whom we owe everything, to the one who has given us life itself. Listen, if your heart aches, Knowing that there are people who are actively betraying this country through acts of espionage, a country, by the way, that has given people the greatest freedoms, the greatest liberties, the greatest potential for upward mobility, if your heart aches at that, if your blood boils at that, how much more should your heart and my heart ache at the treasonous sin that ultimately led our Savior to the cross? So often as Christians, we are consumed with politics and the things of this world, and as we should, There there is a point in which we need to be involved in this world and playing our part, but we cannot lose sight of something more important, and that is this kingdom called the kingdom of God and the church who is the bride of Christ and the purity therein of the people of that church, you and me. So at different times and in different ways, God would warn the nation of Israel about the seriousness of their sin in his sight. Take, for example, the passage we just read. Look at the words that are used to describe the nation, a sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Folks, that is a lot crammed into one verse. That is an indictment of the highest order crammed into one verse about a people that were treasonous towards God. It's funny that we get our blood boils when somebody like Robert Hansen, a single person, is treasonous towards this country. In this case, we have an entire nation, Israel, being treasonous towards God. Let me give you another example of one of the most graphic ways that God warned the nation of Israel about the seriousness of their sin. And it can be found in the prophet Hosea. The prophet Hosea was told to marry an adulterous woman, a prostitute. Brace yourselves for what I'm about to say. A whore. A whore. And if you think that that is strong language that I'm using, then I present to you the word of God this morning. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. Three times in one verse, the word whoredom is used. You think God takes it seriously? You bet he does. Not only this, but Hosea was then instructed to name his children he had with this woman of whoredom in ways that would also serve as a reminder to the nation of Israel of the seriousness of their sins. This was their children. Jezreel, I will punish. Lo, Ruhamah, not pitied. Lo, Ami, not my people. Hosea's own family would serve as a living example to Israel just how scandalous, just how offensive and wicked their sin was in his eyes. Folks, that cannot be lost on us in this generation. It cannot be lost on us in this generation. What kind of whoredom was Israel committing? Well, it's spelled out in just a couple chapters later in Hosea. It says, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. The Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of this land. Here's his indictment. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. No knowledge of God in the land. There is something. There is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing of adultery. And listen to this. They break all bounds. It's literally a generation that has thrown off all restraint. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. I like what this verse says. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. It is as if the people are distracted. There's no knowledge of God in the land because everybody's distracted on other things. Nobody's focused on God. It's dangerous when the people of God are distracted. Amen? We cannot let ourselves become distracted from what is truly important because danger will not be far behind. Now, the danger for us as believers is that we almost always recognize the gravity of a situation when somebody is treasonous in this country. We almost always do. As a matter of fact, many of us, our hearts burn with the intensity of a thousand suns towards those politicians that we think are being treasonous. Whether they're Democrat or Republican, it doesn't matter. If we feel that a politician is being treasonous, our hearts burn. Do they not? Of course they do. And that's why we are okay when somebody commits treason with putting them to death or putting them in a supermax prison. But I'm not so sure we as believers always find it a big deal when God's children are flirting around or messing around with sin. Again, our blood may boil with the intensity of a thousand suns against the person we think that is being treasonous in this country. But when it comes to God's children messing around with sin or churches adopting the standards of this world, we're upset Just not that upset. We're not upset about the sin in the church as much as we are about the election that is about to occur or that has occurred. Folks, that is one reason the New Testament writers so sternly rebuked the early church when they messed around with sin. Read your New Testament. They did this to make sure that the first century church was pure. Why did God put Ananias and Sapphira to death for a simple lie? They had lied and God put them to death. Why? to send a message. And the message is this, it's treasonous. It's treasonous. Even the smallest sin is incredibly treasonous. This was a truth that Jonathan Edwards, by the way, in his generation proclaimed, the smallest sin is an act of cosmic treason against a holy God. Lest we forget, lest we forget, you know what's interesting about the passage we read? Where I said that generation of Israelites—they broke all bounds in Hosea. It says that they broke all bounds; the restraints were off. They were a locomotive with no brakes. They were doing whatever they wanted. They threw off all restraints. It sounds like our generation, doesn't it? it? Sounds a lot about what is happening in our generation. And this is where things get interesting. Everything I just said was way of introduction to what I'm about to say. You ready? This is where we're going to get practical. It's difficult for us as believers living in the 21st century. And here's why. We are living in a culture that is, I wrote this in my notes, pushing the boundaries of sinful behavior. I pretty much think we've broken right through them. I think most of you would agree. Dr. John MacArthur has suggested that our current culture seems to be following the pattern marked out in Romans chapter 1. I'm going to show you Romans chapter 1 in a second, but before I do that, let me tell you the pattern that he sees in Romans chapter 1, and here it is. It is, first there is a sexual revolution, followed by a homosexual revolution, followed by absolute and utter debased thinking in our culture. Now, why do we say that? Why does he say that? And I agree with him. Here it is in Romans chapter one, beginning in verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. They would not repent. They would not acknowledge the God that created them. So God gave them up and there was a sexual revolution because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Verse 26, this is the homosexual revolution. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameful acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So let me stop right there. When a nation does not repent, when people do not repent, God gives them up to the lust of their flesh and there's a sexual revolution. This happened in 1960 here in this country. And then God, according to this passage, will give them up even further and there will be a homosexual revolution, which we are currently in. And I think towards the tail end of that revolution has already happened and they have won. And the next step is absolute and utter debased thinking. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I think many of you would agree with me that we are living in a generation of debased thinking. How bad is it? It's bad enough that where men who want to call themselves women can compete in women's sports, win that sport, and we give them, and they're smashing records, and we're acknowledging it as if it's true. Where a man dressed as a woman can win Women of the Year, and we acknowledge it as true where we can say there's 150 genders, and we can say that's true. Folks, if that's not Romans 1 playing out, I don't know what is. Here's the point of all of this. As our culture continues to slide down into greater greater depths of depravity, as sin abounds in our culture, you and I as believers are going to face temptations perhaps other generations didn't, at least on a level that other generations didn't. If we are not exceedingly careful and faithfully diligent, we can stumble. The most natural temptation, of course, is this, that we become desensitized to what we see going on in culture. We get desensitized to what we see going on in culture to the point where the things that should be scandalous to us seem rather mainstream and normal to us. And I say this in gentleness. Many, I tell this to everybody, if you don't know me personally, outside the pulpit, I'm rather, I'm pretty easygoing, at least I think so. But I get in the pulpit, I transform. And I know I preach a little bit like a Baptist preacher. Everyone says you're like a Baptist preacher. (laughs) Our lone Baptist here. Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Just kidding. Just kidding. So... know that what I'm saying, I'm saying with a compassionate heart, I'm not throwing stones because, um, but for the grace of God, we, you know, we all are sinners and we all have come out of the world if you're believers. So I, what I say, I say with a heart of compassion, even though sometimes I cut with an edge and it doesn't always feel that way, seen that way. But Here's the point. We become desensitized to what we see so that where men crushing and destroying women's records in sports suddenly becomes normal to us, or where two men getting married become normal to us, or where there's somebody identifying as this gender or that gender suddenly becomes normal to us. Folks, we cannot, as believers living in this century, let those things become normal to us. We cannot let our hearts become desensitized to those things. We must maintain a sensitive heart. Ephesians 5, 11 and 12 says this, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. Not only are we not going to, we're not going to let ourselves become desensitized to it, we're going to expose it for what it is. We're going to stand our ground, speak the truth, no matter the cost to us, and we're not even going to mention what they do in secret in the sense that it's shameful. We're not going to, take part in it or find entertainment in it or rejoice in it in any way, shape or form. We're going to maintain sensitive hearts to the very thing that led Jesus to the cross. Far be it from me that my heart becomes desensitized to the treasonous acts that led Jesus to the cross. For heaven sakes, Lord, don't let that happen to me. As believers, we must guard our consciences because they can get seared real fast, right? They can get seared real fast. We are to be an innocent people in this generation. You know, one of the greatest insults that the world tries to put upon you and me as believers? Well, you're just so naive to the things of this world. Thank you. (laughs) I strive for that. I strive for that very thing. Why? Because of verses like this. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpent, and everybody say it with me, and innocent as doves. I'm wise as a serpent, but innocent as a dove. I love being naive to the ways of this world. Romans 16, 19 says this. I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Naive to the ways of this world. Praise God. You can say that about me all you want. There was a time before I was saved in which I was wise to the ways of this world. But that was not true wisdom. That was folly on display for all to see. If you think you're wise by the standards of this world and you take pride in that, repent from it now. It's not wisdom that you have, it's folly on display. As believers, we want to be innocent as doves. Now the second temptation believers will face as our culture continues to break all bounds, and I mean, we are breaking all bounds everywhere. The next temptation is this. We are going to go from being from desensitized to what we are seeing to ashamed of what we believe. We're going to be desensitized to what we see, and then we're going to start being ashamed of what we believe. Once believers start to become desensitized to the gravity and depravity of sin, it's not long before we find ourselves embarrassed about what we actually believe. Do you want to know why I preach a sermon like this, and it's heavy, and you guys feel it? You feel the gravity of it? Because if you don't get it here, where are you going to get it? If we don't open God's word and feel the gravity of the sin that led Jesus to the cross, if you don't feel it in the assembly of the saints, You think you're going to find it out in the world? Of course not. And I know a sermon like this weighs on us. It's like, wow, this is a heavy sermon. Praise God. Praise God. As believers, here's the temptation. We don't want to seem old fashioned or out of touch. We don't want to be those Bible thumping Christians. No, we want a seat at the table of modern pop culture, right? I want to hang out with the popular people, right? Remember high school? I want to be with the popular people. And by the way, I'm telling you, what we all experienced in high school—that that popularity, that drive to be popular and be a part of the popular group—that stays with you to some degree. I th- that pressure, that desire, like, well, I don't want to be on the out; I want to be on the in. As I said before, folks, that's juvenile thinking. I would expect the people of this world to behave that way, but not the church, not the saints of God. Listen, if they hated our master, what do you think they're going to think of you and me? We have to give up this silly notion that somehow the world is going to find favor with us or like what we stand for, or who it is we believe in, or the gospel that we preach. They're not. That's juvenile thinking. So let's set it aside and say no more of that. And here's what happens. We not only slowly become ashamed of what we believe, but of who we believe. And let me tell you what I'm talking about. We become ashamed of what this thing teaches And then we become ashamed of the one who taught it, Jesus. And so what many churches are doing is they're redefining Jesus. They're saying, we don't like that Bible and that Jesus. So we're going to give you a new Jesus who's all love and all grace. We're going to just talk about the parts of scripture that we want to. They become embarrassed of what they once believed and in whom they once believed. And you know what happens when you cross that line? This happens. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Many churches have abandoned the scriptures and redefined Jesus, and they think they're clinging to the true Jesus. They're not, they're ashamed of the of the Jesus of the Bible and the things that he taught. Folks, I don't want to do that, do you? I don't want to go down that road. I'm going to stand strong on the Jesus as presented in Scripture and the hard things he said and the tables that he overturned and the radical things he did. I'm not going to be ashamed of him or his gospel. It's once we are ashamed that we are now susceptible to the final temptation that we're sure to face. And that last temptation is the worst of all because we go from desensitized to what we see, to ashamed of what we believe, to just fully embracing what God hates. We get desensitized, we become ashamed, and then we just give in. We cave in and we embrace what the world loves. And that is which God ultimately hates. And it doesn't necessarily happen slowly, but it happens quickly. We give in a little over here and we make a few concessions over there. And before we know it, we have all but embraced what the scriptures soundly stand against. And again, perhaps it is, the fear that Christianity won't seem relevant to the world around us. Think about it. We worry that the church won't seem relevant if we don't run after and participate in the carnal desires of this world. Does that sound like right thinking to you? It's not. It is not. Listen to what I'm about to say to you because it is just the opposite of that. It is precisely when culture is running headlong into sin, when the train, the locomotive has no brakes, that the true gospel will be most relevant. It is when all bounds are being broken by culture that those that are in possession of the gospel, the true gospel, will be most relevant. Why do I say that? That is because people walking in a great darkness are in need of people in possession of a great light. Those that are in the darkest of dark need somebody with a light. The time to dim the light is never, but especially not when things are getting dark. And yet many churches, I think they're going, well, things are getting dark. Let's dim our light a little bit to be more attractive to the world around us. No, thanks. Bad idea. Really bad idea. Jesus himself came into the world at a very dark time in world history. Matthew 4, 16, the people dwelling in darkness, utter darkness, have seen a great light. A great light, an astounding light, the true light of lights, the light of the world. And for those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. That light, Jesus, now resides in our hearts in this generation. And this generation is in darkness. And folks, we are either going to shine that light or we are not. We are either going to call what is happening in this world, sin and stay sensitive to it and be a people set apart and wholly devoted unto God, or we are not. But I'm going to tell you right now, your days on this planet are short. The days are evil. The days are short. Your feet were set here for a generation, folks. Let's be courageous. Amen? Many of us are willing to be courageous for this country, as we should. It's a great country. We love this country. We will stand and defend it. We'll even die for it. If that is our attitude here, how much more should we be sold out for the things of God and the kingdom of God? How much more should we stand strong on what the scriptures stand strong on? There have been pastors in an attempt to be friendly with the world and to seem cool and hip have said things like this that we shouldn't shout about the things that the bible whisper about and that's in regard to sexual sin they're going to say like well jesus never talked about homosexuality himself and the bible doesn't talk a lot about it so we shouldn't shout what the bible whispers about i got news for you the bible shouts about these things the bible shouts about gender and marriage and purity and all the Bible shouts about all of these things, but not in a way to condemn, but in a way to call people to repentance and faith in the one true God. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light and in those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death on them, a light has dawned. That was Christ in the first century, but your feet and my feet have set been set in the 21st century. Will we shine that light? Or will we be ashamed, afraid, or doubtful of the power of the gospel to transform lives? Folks, do you believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and risen can transform people from the inside out? Because if you do proclaim it with all of your heart, do not be afraid to tell people that the very thing that led Jesus to the cross, that treasonous sin, that is your sin and my sin, the very sin that led Jesus to the cross is the very same treasonous sin that can be forgiven because of the cross because Jesus is a propitiation for our sins. He died, the sinless son of God, to take on the wrath of God so that you and I might walk free, amen? That's the gospel, that your sin was transferred to the cross and his righteousness is transferred to you and it's done when you come before Christ with childlike faith and say simply, Lord, forgive me a sinner. I repent of my sins, my treasonous acts towards you, And I ask that you would receive me in the greatest, some of the greatest verses in all the world, some of the greatest things that Jesus said, one of the favorite things I say it all the time. Jesus said, I will never cast away the one that comes to me. If you come to him with a humble, repentant heart, he will receive you and he will forgive you. Now let's bring this full circle because I got to wrap this up. Let's go full circle back to this guy. Possibly the worst intelligence disaster in US history, Mr. Hansen. Hanson is currently, as I said, serving 15 consecutive life sentences without parole at a federal supermax, the only federal supermax we have. There is literally no hope of him ever getting out, no hope of him ever seeing his family again, no hope of anything other than 23 hours a day in solitary confinement and just a little bit of time outside. But let me ask you a question. What kind of man do you think Mr. Hansen would be if all the charges were dropped against him and he was set free and allowed to anonymously relocate any in the world, anywhere in the world with his family and to live out his days with his family? Well, he would probably be one of the most grateful, thankful, happiest men on the face of this planet. That's what I guess I would be. Treasuring each day of freedom as if it were the most precious gift ever given. That's what he would do. But guess what folks, that's never going to happen to him. There's no hope for him ever getting out, but that's exactly what happened to you and me. That is exactly what happened to you and me. We have been forgiven of treason of the highest order. We are guilty of a treason that makes his treason look like nothing. And yet the treason that he has committed is unforgivable. But the treason that you and I have been guilty of is guess what? It's forgivable. Amen? It is forgivable and it is forgiven if you are in Christ. So what type of people should we be? We should be people just like this. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he said it and he answered, say it teacher, a certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, they canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time that I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's the application. Let's live like people who have been forgiven of a debt so big. It is as if we have received the most precious gift in all the world because we have. Let's live like people who were on their way to hell but have suddenly received heaven because that's who we are. And if you're here today and you don't know what I'm talking about because you haven't received Christ, the message today is this. Come to Christ and be forgiven. Come to Christ and put your trust in him. Bow your heart in humility. Receive him with childlike faith. I finish with this thought. You remember how I told you that as Christians, we can be excited about politics more than we are about what's happening in the church? Well, here's the deal. We can be excited about what's happening in the church and still be excited about all the wrong things. Let me prove it to you. And I finished with this thought. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Man, that's a lot to be excited about. But then Jesus says this. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Say it with me, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Folks, God has given us many things. If you are a believer, you have received every spiritual blessing that he could have given you. Ephesians chapter 1. Every spiritual blessing that he could have given to you, he has given to you. And he's given you power and so much other. He's given us so much. But folks, do not lose sight of the most precious thing that he has ever given you. And that is a pardon of your sins. That the treason that we have committed against him has been forgiven in full and that your names are written in the book of heaven. This is the gospel, and on this gospel, this church, and we will stand. Amen? Amen. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, we come before you this day. And Lord, as we gather around the communion table, we are reminded of the cost that was paid, the price that was paid, so that we could be forgiven. Thank you that that debt was paid in full on our behalf. Thank you that we are forgiven people. God, there's no hope for Robert Hansen. And yet there's hope for us who have committed a treason far worse than he had ever committed. And we stand here today as forgiven people. Lord, may that transform the way that we live today. May people see our joy. May we love much. May we be a people that are generous and kind. May we, God, be a courageous and bold people when we need to be. God, let us be excited that our names are written in the book of life. And God, let that be evident to all that see us and know us. So fathers, we leave. We leave in your name and in your power and in your strength as your children because of what Jesus did for us. And it's in his name we pray. And the church said with me, amen. God bless you. You guys have a great day. We'll see you right here next week.
6: Jesus, I my cross have taken all to leave and follow thee destitute despised forsaken thou from hence my all shall be
0: following program is called Equipping the Saints, provided by ETS Ministry. Hello, heart
7: and soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. First of all, in Scripture, the term the faith could be speaking, as I shared earlier, of the body of doctrine that true believers believe, right? The faith. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is the body of truth that Jude encourages and exhorts the church to contend for. The faith. It's what we believe that has been delivered once for all to the church. Or it could be speaking simply of Biblical faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as revealed in the word, which brings about salvation and also brings about sanctification. And that's what I believe he's speaking of here. I don't believe he's speaking of the body of doctrine, but that he's speaking of the personal faith of those chosen of God. Does that make sense? Personal faith of those chosen of God. Now, before we talk about this idea, this faith here, we need to unpack this and we see some difficult, with some people, theological terms. He says, for the faith of those chosen of God. Paul simply was appointed an apostle for the goal or purpose to bring about the faith of those chosen of God, or literally the electos of God. You think of the word elect, we think of voting, we choose. We have an election where we choose a president or whatever it might be. But first of all, we need to ask a question. Who are the chosen of God? Or what does this term mean? The term electos of God is a simple term which literally means those God chose. He is an apostle for the faith of those God chose. That's what he's saying here in this verse. Now many debate the doctrine of election, and these debates, I believe, are fruitless and useless. And although we do not understand... Just as God holds us all responsible when we reject the provision of his son, so too scripture teaches that God chooses whom he will save. And that's as far as scripture goes. And folks, although we don't understand and we cannot harmonize human responsibility with God's sovereign election, we cannot harmonize the fact that we are to preach the gospel throughout the whole earth. We can't harmonize that. It doesn't mean that election is not true. And it doesn't mean we have the right to change what it means because we don't understand. That's arrogance and that's pride. Election is all over the Scriptures. Thumb through with me as I look at some of these verses. Ephesians chapter 1, go back to verse 3. Paul is going to praise God for everything that he has brought about in the Father, in the Son, and in the Spirit for the body of Christ. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, just as he chose us, this is that word, in him before the foundation of the world. When did God choose before the foundation of the world? That we should be holy and blameless, there's the goal. Before him, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. There we see God chose before the foundation of the earth. Second Thessalonians 2.13, flip over there. Second Thess 2.13. But we should always give thanks to God for you. I love how Paul is always giving thanks for the body of Christ. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. What a wonderful verse we could spend the whole time here on this verse. We have a theology here of God choosing for salvation through faith in the truth, bringing about our salvation and sanctification. Let's go to Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 8. And only if we talk to each other this way, what a wonderful time of fellowship we would have. Paul tells Timothy. Second Timothy two, eight. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David according to my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to imprisonment as a criminal. But the word of God is not imprisoned. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. First Peter one, 1 Peter addresses those scattered, those resident aliens. They're residing here in the earth, but they are aliens because their identity is in Christ in the heavenlies. First Peter one one. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, again apostle Jesus Christ, to those who reside, their resident aliens, reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, and he says, "Who are electos? Who are chosen?" According to, here's how it happened, the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are chosen by God, we are elect, and although we fully don't understand it, no one becomes a Christian solely by their own choice, but God chooses before the foundation of the world whom he will save. Now I need to say one thing to clarify, although election is true, We do not elevate it or build our theology around that one doctrine to the exclusion of other truths that God has revealed. There's an effective work, I believe, of Satan in the church these days of believers who elevate election above every other doctrine in Scripture. They have a one doctrine bandwagon which excludes and lessens other truths of God. And unfortunately, some defending election, it has become to them more important than God himself folks election is not the only truth revealed in scripture concerning God and man It is not the center pin of revealed truth. It is not the center of our theology. Then that makes it about us folks Christ is the center of our theology not our election Don't build your theology around it alone We need to have a balanced view of scripture that is Christ Christ-focused. Just be thankful if you are saved that he chose you and praise him And if you're not saved, don't say, well, maybe I'm not elect. God says this to you. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You're responsible. You're completely responsible for rejecting the gospel. You will be held accountable for rejecting the gospel, regardless of election. It doesn't matter. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. So then we have in our passage here. Paul was made an apostle simply for the goal or purpose of bringing about the faith of those who were chosen, the electos of God, those God chose. Well, how is it that God brings about the faith of those who are chosen? How did the apostle Paul specifically bring about the faith of those chosen of God? The answer is fairly simple. It was by declaring the gospel declaring the word that was revealed to him by Christ, inspired by the Spirit, written for our benefit, in which the whole church is built upon. It is the foundation of the word laid forth by the apostles and prophets, proclaimed that brings about the faith of those chosen of God. God laid the foundation through the apostles and prophets, and what did they do? They brought forth the word of God. Take, for instance, the apostle Paul. First of all, remember when Jesus called Paul? He called him to be his witness, to declare his truth that would be revealed to him. And remember, after Paul had been blinded, God sent Ananias, the good Ananias, not the bad one from earlier chapters in Acts. He sent Ananias to bring back his sight ultimately. And when he was there, Ananias says this to him. And Paul recounts this in Acts chapter 22, verse 14. And then he said, Ananias, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will. First thing, God has appointed Paul to know his will. And to see the righteous one, he saw Christ. And to hear an utterance from his mouth, he heard the word from his mouth. And then he says, here, this is what's going to happen. For you will be a witness for him to all men of what you have seen and heard. Paul is a witness of Christ to all men from what he had seen and heard. And we have that in Scripture. The apostle Paul was appointed specifically to know God's will, to see Christ, to hear his word, then to be his witness. And we see that truth manifest in Scripture. And we see an example of that back in Ephesians chapter 3. And if you want to turn there also, Paul is going to give them some insight into how God revealed the mystery to him, the mystery of Christ, the mystery that God was not just working through Israel, that he would be bringing in the Gentiles also in Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, For the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me, he's going to say this for you. He's going to say, I'm going to tell you about the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. And he's going to explain that. That by revelation, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote in brief. He wrote it. They read it, he says. And referring to this, when you read You can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Paul was given revelation. He wrote it down, and the Ephesians here have it right there. And he says, my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Do you see again? It was revealed to the apostles and prophets, the foundation of the church, And then he says here in the spirit, to be specific, that Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. Verse 8, to the very least of the saints, all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ And to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things in order that the manifold wisdom of God might be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. Paul is saying that the apostles and prophets were given the word of God and they recorded the word of God for the benefit of the church of God. And the apostle Paul was fully committed to the proclamation of election. No, the proclamation of Christ. Colossians chapter one and we proclaim him verse twenty-eight, admonishing every man and teaching every man that we present every man complete in Christ. And Paul no doubt recognized this stewardship. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, let a man regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The apostle Paul was entrusted as a steward of the mysteries of God, that's God's word, And he proclaimed Christ for the purpose of building up the body, and he unashamedly shared the gospel, revealed to him, fully recognizing the power was in the gospel to save. It is the power of God unto salvation, Romans 1. And fully understanding, as he said to Timothy, it is the word of God that equips believers for every good work, 2 Timothy 3.16, as I quoted earlier, and it is the word that does its work in us, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul was about the declaration of Christ via his word that was revealed to him. And you say, okay, I get it now. The Apostle was entrusted with the word of God. But how does the word of God relate to the faith of those chosen by God? Very simple. Our faith is in Jesus Christ as revealed in his word alone. And our faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. God uses the means of his word to bring about faith. In those he has chosen. Faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. The means in which God brings us into his kingdom through the living and abiding word of God. The means in which we are equipped through the pure milk of the word. God gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers for the equipping of the saints. And we are equipped through the word of God alone. Second Timothy 316. It equips us for every good work. And then notice in Ephesians 4 what the goal of this equipping is. What's the goal again? Ephesians 4, I'll read this for you. Until we attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. That's real similar to our passage. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. So then all this said, Paul was appointed and gifted as an apostle to bring about the faith of those chosen. And how does it happen to the proclamation of the word? This foundation laid by the apostles and prophets, which is being built upon. And folks, your faith from start to finish is based upon what God has revealed through the apostles and prophets concerning Christ. And that's why it is such an abomination to have these gospels all throughout the church would have nothing to do with the word of God. Gospels like try Jesus or add him to your life, all that type of stuff, which is not in scripture, that will generate a bogus earthly, worldly faith rather than true faith in the true word concerning the true Savior, Jesus Christ. Okay, so practically, what can we get from this first portion? It is the word of God revealed by the apostles and prophets that... God uses to bring about faith in Christ, saving faith and sanctifying faith. Folks, do you realize what's being said here? Paul is an apostle for the faith of those chosen. That's the reason why. And we have the fruit of Paul's faithful apostleship here in the word of God. Our faith is not based on what we see. Our faith is not based on what people say, apart from the word of God. Our faith is not based on what we feel. Our faith is based upon the revealed word concerning Christ, which is the foundation of the church, which was initially laid by the apostles and prophets. You know, sometimes there are people who share with me and they say, I don't think I could ever have faith like you. And I chuckle in my heart because if they saw my heart, they realize my faith has nothing to do with me. But I share with them as I share with you right now. My faith is not because of me or some super gifting, although there is a special gift of faith spiritual gift, but folks, we are all called to have faith and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're called, we're commanded to do that. We're all commanded to believe what he says. We're all commanded to trust in him, and where does that faith come from? It is created in the heart of a true believer as a response to the living and abiding word of God. It's that simple. Simply put, you want to trust Christ more, get into the word more. Hide it in your heart, run it through your mind, set your mind on the things above as revealed in the word, let it dwell richly in your hearts, get the word of God into your heart through diligent, faithful meditation study, and God will bring about faith in what he says. Now some of you are saying, well, I do that, I'm in the word all day long, I've got Bible verses on my mirror, I've got it in my pockets, I've got everything here, but I don't seem to have the faith that I think I should have. It's so small. Could it be you haven't set aside your sin before you've gotten in the Word of God? Could it be you have sin in your life and you can look at as many verses as you want, but it's not going to change you? You're going to be a forgetful hearer like James would say. Folks, James talks about putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. Our responses to trials, our speaking angrily and too quickly. Rather, we should be quiet. Put that aside. Then in humility receive the word and plant it. Maybe your faith is very small because your sin is very large. Brother, sister, just confess your sin and get into the word. Confess all of our sin is centered around our selfishness, basically. Things that we want rather than what God has declared in his word. Set your mind on the things above. Run the word through your heart. Let it dwell in you richly. Meditate on it. And God will bring about that faith in Christ. Faith comes from hearing in hearing from the Word, Christ. So Paul's apostleship first was for the faith of those chosen, but there's another purpose in our text. Again, verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness.
8: But wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. on earth is done when by thy grace the victory won In death's cold wave I will not flee since God through Jordan leadeth me He leadeth me He leadeth me by His faithful follower I would be for by